I invite you to take your Bible with me and uh, let's turn together to Genesis chapter 23. Our Bible text for this morning, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. That's the whole chapter. There we go. The whole chapter is our Bible text this morning. And I think that's on page 16. Is that right? I don't know. Well, it's at the beginning. Is that right? It's 16. There we go. And the church Bible. If you choose to use the church Bible, 16. There it is. All right. Now, uh, when reading the Bible uh, together, or when it's being publicly read, sometimes it's challenging to follow along. If you're just listening without reading, and this is one of those texts which provides a little more challenge to just follow along. So look in your own Bibles. I encourage you to do so. Let's give our attention to God's word as it is being read. Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went, to, went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for buying for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So, the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of God. And I trust that you are grateful that we get to read it together. I invite you to pray with me as we ask the Lord for some help in this time. Father in heaven, we, we need you to speak. And we know that you do that when your word is read and your word is preached. Father, give us, by your grace, minds and hearts and wills that are ready to hear from you. Cause what each of us hear to be more than the words of a mere man. 
cause us to hear from your very spirit and plant in us the very living and active word that it may accomplish in us what you determined to do to make us more and more like Christ. We just sang that, Father. Make us more like him, we pray. And it's for his glory, Jesus' glory, that we ask these things. Amen. Well, it's, uh, it's been my practice in preaching to move through a book of the Bible, section by section. Uh, there are times, though, I have to admit, when I come to a portion of Scripture and I struggle to know how to preach it, this is one of those passages. Uh, Kathy was telling me that she read it over earlier in the week and wondered, what are you going to do with this? Well, I was wondering the same thing because I just stared at it for more than half the week. I stared at it and begged, begged the Lord, just give me something because I was almost prepared to ditch it and just go, that's in the Bible, don't know what to do with it. But I thought, well, maybe let's check some, some people who are smarter than me. So I thought, well, I'll look up what Alistair Begg has to say. Nothing. I thought, well, Piper, he's got something to say about it. Nada. <laughs> well, then I thought, well, maybe MacArthur crickets. Nothing. Empty. They skipped it. I thought, well, there's no shame. No shame in just passing over. Then I thought, well, let's just do a Google search. I looked up some unknowns, like me, unknown preachers. And there was a couple sermons, and I thought, oh, you get this. And they helped me. I can't even credit who they are. I didn't steal their sermon, I assure you. Um, but then it occurred to me what, what's going on here. So um, now I, I say all of that, by the way, uh, because I need you to continue to pray for me that I would rightly handle the word of truth. Uh, it says that in 2 Timothy 2.15. That's my task before you. That's our task as elders, to rightly handle the word of truth. And uh, so you want to kids know that verse, right? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. I know you quote it in the King James, but uh, I know it this way. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and correctly, rightly handles the word of truth. So, that's my aim this morning. That's always my aim. And I uh, encourage you to be prayerful for us who, who bring the word. Anyway, here we are in Genesis 23, and I actually have a sermon. So that's quite surprising. Thank you, Lord, for that. Uh, but in this passage, we're told that Sarah died. We're told that Abraham grieved and that he wanted to give her an honorable burial. So we purchased a burial cave among, uh, along with a field that was, that was with it. So I take it that the point of this section of Scripture is not primarily about Abraham's grief. It's not about how you bury the dead, how you honor them. That's not primarily what this is about, though he did honor his wife. But this is about how Abraham ordered his life around God's promise to him. Abraham and Sarah lived and died by God's promises. And here is my basic application outline for us this morning. When you order your life on God's promises, it shows in the kind of reputation you have. When you order your life on God's promises, it leaves a legacy. When you order your life on God's promises, it informs how you use your resources, stuff, money. So there it is. Those, those three words I'll use as my headings this morning. Reputation, legacy, and resources. First, reputation. Uh, my earliest memory of, of church was uh, with my own family and my grandparents, both sides. And there were uncles, cousins, second cousins. All of us went to 
Toronto, Czechoslo Toronto Czechoslovak Baptist Church. That, that was our church, my, my memory. Anyway, my, my grandfather, he spoke very little English, even to the point of his death. He could communicate very little. But every Sunday, he would sit there, and if I was up here, he would be there in the very back pew on the very far left from, from my looking. And he would sit there, and all the kids would stop by. All the little kids, like my friends, three- and four-year-olds, stop by. He would smile, and he'd reach into his pocket and give them candy. My grandfather was the candy man before Willy Wonka. He was the candy man before Sammy Davis Jr. Everybody knew him as candy man. My friends, little four- and five-year-olds, they, they couldn't speak Czech either, and, but they knew there's the candy man. I was proud of my grandfather. He's my grandfather. He's the candy man. He had a reputation with the kids. Now, you don't get a reputation for doing something just once, right? You get a reputation by doing something over and over, something similar, something related. You, you do those things repeatedly. And you get a reputation for either good or bad because people talk about their experiences with you. Or they hear from others what their experiences were. My friends would tell their other little friends about the candy man. Well, the things that you believe, the things that you value, inform how you behave. And that behavior, worked out over time, gives you a reputation. Abraham lived and would die by God's promises. And I take it that that informed how he interacted with people around him. So, as we look at our text, when he approached the people, the Hittites, the footnote says sons of Heth. I may refer to them as sons of Heth. The Hittites, or sons of Heth, when he approached the people of the land to acquire a burial plot for Sarah, his reputation preceded him. You can see this in verse 4. Now, he introduces himself. Look, he, he rightly understands his status. I am a sojourner, verse 4, and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead. So he came respectfully. He acknowledged that he had no rights. He was a sojourner, a stranger, someone who depended on the hospitality of others. That's his introduction. But then they respond positively to him. Verse 5, the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of tombs. We're not going to withhold any of those from you. Bury your dead. Just pick. So they addressed him as a, as a prince of God, someone who knows God, someone who represented God. And they didn't rebuff his request. They didn't say, get out of here. You're a stranger. No, they, they honored him. They were willing to let him use the choicest of tombs. And I think that's an indication that he was well-respected. He was understood to be a man of character. Now, there's some commentators, as I studied this, suggested that it, perhaps it was just mere flattery on the part of the sons of Heth to, to begin the negotiating process. But as readers of this, as we move through Genesis, we, we've already seen Abraham's character, his faith-fueled integrity on display. Um, so just back in the history here, he acted on behalf of four kings to rescue them. Among, uh, and Lot was among them, his nephew. Right? He rescued them from Chedorlaomer. This is Genesis 14. Returned the stuff to those four kings. He gave a tithe of everything to Melchizedek, priest of Most High God. 
or God Most High, I should say. He settled, and we dealt with this a few weeks ago, he settled the dispute with Abimelech over the well. He took the initiative, made a treaty with him, showed himself to be a man who's true to his word. And previously, despite the pretense of Sarah being his sister, Abraham had proved himself to be trustworthy in dealings with the kings among whom he lived. That was his reputation. So I take it that, that his reputation had been established through a pattern of behavior. Because, why? Because he kept God's promises in view. Now I think the application for us is actually quite straightforward. What kind of reputation are you building? It all depends on what is most important to you. So ask yourself, is it God's promises or something else? What are God's promises to you? God's promise to you isn't to have a piece of land in Canaan. What is God's promise to you and me? Romans 10 tells us, 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So if you have put your Hope in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose from the grave. If you have humbled yourself before God, if you have acknowledged and turned away from your sin, and know, and know that Jesus paid for your sin at the cross. If you know that to be true, if that is true for you, it should change how you interact with those closest to you. But it should also change how you interact with those you don't know. Now, why does it change you? Why do the promises of God change you? The Bible says, if you believe, you are saved, right? The Bible also says that if anyone is in Christ, that is to say, by faith, then you're new creation. The old, right? That's sin's control. That's passed away. And the new that's the Holy Spirit's indwelling in control. The new has come. That's why. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. So, so then if the Holy Spirit indwells and control you, then you will be. You will be someone who demonstrates, as it says in Galatians 5.22 and 23, and this was reviewed in Sunday school this morning. If, if you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, then, then you will be someone who demonstrates love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. Now, if you are immature in faith, if you're new to the Christian faith, these qualities may be less obvious, but I will say this. Even if you're new in the faith, you want them. That's the transforming power of the Spirit. Having heard the gospel, you want you look at that list and you go, oh, may that be in me. And you pray that God would form them in you. And you routinely confess to God and others when you fail to demonstrate these qualities. And I'll say this as well. Becoming more, more loving, gentler, becoming more kind, having more peace and patience and meekness and self-control, having those qualities. These qualities are not attained Primarily by effort 
don't hear me wrong, effort is important. But these virtues, they are effects. They are byproducts of genuine faith in Christ. This is what the Apostle Peter wrote in his second letter. It's God's power that gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. God's power. It doesn't say your discipline gives you everything you need for life life and godliness. No, it says God's power has granted to us all things that pertain to. And we get this power through the knowledge, as, as Peter says, through the knowledge of him that is Christ who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's how we get it. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Hear that? He's granted to us these promises so that through these, that is to say the promises, we may become partakers of the divine nature. That's glorious. Having escaped corruption, uh, sorry, having escaped corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Through the promises, we participate in the divine nature. Peter continues in verse 5 to say that it is on that basis that we add the virtues. That is to say, the fruit of the Spirit that's enumerated, enumerated as well in, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. So Christian, brothers and sisters in Christ, what's your reputation? Are you known among fellow believers in Jesus as joyful or complaining? Are you known as kind and gentle or harsh and judgmental? I was thinking about this pandemic. It's, it has left, you know, I think one of the gifts of God, part of the grace of God is to expose in us our own sin. That the pandemic has done that. Here's what I mean. And even if we don't say these things out loud, what are the things that well up in our minds and our hearts? And the, on both sides of this, there's judgment. Judgment for not wearing a mask or for wearing one, <laughs> right? We're not saying anything, but oh, we've come to a conclusion. Judgment for socially gathering or not socially gathering. I think it's created a whole new class of, of lepers and Pharisees, isn't it? Look, maybe you haven't done these things, and I, I don't think I've expressed them, but in my mind, I've thought them on one side or the other, and I'm not telling you which side I'm on. <laughs> but I think, I think we're all guilty of that, aren't we? And how about social media? Are you known there as one who curses the government? Or are you one known there for one who, as one who encourages prayer for those who lead? Again, I understand the temptation. What's your reputation? In person or online? Are you kind, gentle, and patient to those who serve you at the grocery store? Everybody's understaffed. You're going to be frustrated. Prices are going up. You're going to be frustrated. Are you kind and gentle and patient? Or are you demanding and rude? It's important to look at our lives, see how they stack up against. What kind of reputation are you building? Now we can see from Abraham's example that, that reputation matters, and it matters especially for people that don't know you. 
That's where reputation matters, right? And it's so easy to stumble and get dragged down by the culture of the world. It is a daily battle. But Christian brothers and sisters, you're going to need endurance. So let me exhort you, even as I exhort myself, cultivate a reputation as a true child of God by, by what? By keeping your focus on Jesus. He is the fulfillment of God's promises, as it says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance. That's what we need, endurance. Endurance to do what pleases the Lord. Endurance so that we demonstrate the character of Christ. Endurance so that we don't fall into the trap of the evil one and, and look just like the world. We need endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you order your life around God's promises, you'll develop a reputation like Abraham. Maybe not a prince, but as a true child of God. Second, legacy is my second word. Legacy. Legacy is what you leave behind for those that follow. Now, that legacy may be financial or material assets. And perhaps some here have received an inheritance from parents or other relatives. But I hope you know this, that the most important legacy that we can leave is a legacy of faith in God's promises. When my mom died a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of, of sharing the eulogy. I thought about it a long time, and the word that came to mind was that my mom was a saint. So I eulogized her, but I, but I thought about it, and I shared every, with everybody at the funeral that, that she was she was generous and hospitable. She was, she was quick to bring a meal or bake cookies, to make sandwiches. She made so many sandwiches in her life. And people could just show up at our house and they would find a place at our table. But I told them, and, and I still know this to be true, my mom was a saint because of none of those things. She was a saint. She was set apart by God because she trusted in Christ. That's what made her a saint. She was set apart by God because of what she believed. And what she believed informed, of course, what she did. Because God had revealed himself to her through the person of Jesus Christ, crucified and raised. She lived and died, trusting in the promises of Christ. And I'll never forget that about her. She left that to me and my brothers. Well, what was Abraham's legacy? What did he leave his son, Isaac? Well, he left a property with a tomb. But more than that, it wasn't just a piece of property in a tomb. It was absolute confidence in God's promise. So when, when Abraham requested a place to bury Sarah, they told him, look, bury your, your dead in the choicest of tombs. None of us will hinder you. Just, just take one. You can just use it. That's fine. But Abraham's not satisfied with borrowing a tomb. He wanted full rights of ownership. Why? Because God had promised to give to his descendants that very land. It would be theirs. We're back to the promise in chapter 17. The Lord says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. So that Abraham is seeking to purchase a plot of land 
as a burial site is not mere convenience. What he was doing was staking a claim. He was establishing ownership in the eyes of the world to what the Lord would give to him and his offspring. To his offspring, not to him. To give to them as a possession. He was establishing that in the eyes of the world. Now, as we read it, you know, you probably uh, were wondering about this protracted dis, uh, description of the negotiating in, in 7 through 12. So he has a particular parcel of land in mind. There's this burial cave at the end of it called Machpelah. He knows who owns it. There's Ephron, the son of Zohar. And he follows the protocol. Ephron is there sitting among the Hittites, the sons of Heth. And this negotiation is happening at the city gate. All of the elders of the city are there, and they tend to gather, as was in ancient cities. They would gather there to discuss and adjudicate all legal and civic matters. That's what they did at the city gate. And perhaps he is addressing a council, or maybe the whole group, I don't know, but that they go ask, entreat, entreat Ephron to sell the property. Make, make this happen. So, the fact that this takes place among the Hittites, established, once the transaction was completed, established that Abraham and his progeny would have legal and lasting right to the burial plot. It wasn't given to him. He bought it. And he would pass that right on to his children after him. This is so important that, that later Jewish tradition established based on this transaction here, that, um, that there are four different means by which a property is legally acquired. By money, by deed, by witnesses, and by physical possession. And all of these were fulfilled. These means were fulfilled. Uh, establishing the, the claim on that property for his posterity. You see, this burial site wasn't just for Sarah. We later find out that Abraham, he is buried there as well as Isaac. Rebekah is buried there. Jacob is buried there. Leah is buried there. Now, Rachel was not buried because she died in childbirth. She was buried near Bethlehem. But as you can see the point, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their wives, some. So this was important. I read somewhere in rabbinic tradition that suggested that even Adam and Eve were buried there. Unlikely. Other crazy stuff, other crazy stuff like uh, the cave itself became a passageway to Eden. Again, kind of mystical um, rabbinic tradition. So, but back to the meaning of the text. That purchase communicated Abraham's confidence. Confidence to Isaac, right? Confidence to Jacob and all of his sons that God would fulfill this promise. We have property. We own it. This is God's promise. He staked a claim on what God promised to give him. And you can see this played out as we move through, through Genesis. Before Jacob died in Egypt, so he was there because of a famine. Before Jacob died there, he says to his sons, I am to be gathered to my people, which means I'm going to die. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. The cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan. He wants to be buried there. And he's saying to his sons, that's ours, and we'll own it all someday because the Lord will fulfill his promise. So the legacy of Abraham in the purchase of the field was that the Israelites never forgot. They never forgot the promise, and it reinforced the very buying of that piece of land, reinforced to say, we believe this. 
as his legacy. Another example, before Joseph died in Egypt, he made the Israelites swear, take my bones to the land that the Lord had promised. 400 years later, they'd been living in the land of Egypt, right? 400 years later, Moses carries Joseph's bones through the wilderness wanderings. That's 40 years. And as Joshua enters the land, he carries Joseph's bones and he puts them in a tomb on a parcel of land, not the same cave, but a parcel of land that Jacob had purchased from Shechemites in Canaan. Same idea, different location. We own this. God promised it. We're staking our claim. So why is all this important? Think about it. The very act of doing something external communicated a legacy. This is what I'm passing on. We are confident in the promises of God. Abraham purchased that tomb, but he left a legacy of faith in God's promise, and he lived and died by that promise. So as we think about our own lives, after you're dead and gone, will your friends, family, and children know from how you ordered your life that you lived and died by God's promises? I ask myself that question. What am I leaving to my children and my grandchildren? What do they know about me? What do they think is important to me? So what's your legacy? Well, certainly our legacy is partly what we say. The things we testify to, you testify to personal faith in Jesus. But that faith will not be believed by anyone unless it is backed up by what we do, right? How you order your life now says much about what you think matters for eternity. How you order your life now says much about what you think matters for eternity. So, is your life ordered around the promises of God or is it ordered around the fulfillment of your ambitions? That's a challenge for us, especially in a prosperous nation like this. Is your life ordered around the promises of God or the achievement of ambitions? Now let me say this, and and I've been emphasizing this. If you're a believer in Jesus, have you identified with Christ by joining his church? Have you ordered your life around identifying in the local church? Why, why does that matter? Well, Jesus commissioned the church with making disciples. And if you don't belong to the church, how can you obey the command to make disciples? Something you should ask yourself. Do you make the Lord's day worship and fellowship a priority? Is that your priority? Or does work or sports or leisure get top priority? I realize the expression, I'm speaking to the choir. So listening at home, happen upon this channel. Something to think about. In your reading, what you read, does the Word of God get Priority over your favorite news website or novel? What will they say about you at your funeral? What will get top billing at your funeral? There's a man who loved his hobbies. He was a guy who really worked hard at work. Yeah. I hope what they say about me is that he loved Jesus and he loved being with God's people and he loved the gospel. I, I hope they say that about me. Well, lastly, I have this heading is simply resources. So the question is, what do you do with your stuff? What do you do with your stuff? Now, you earn a paycheck, and of course, right at the top, 
right off the top. Uncle Joe takes his piece, and, and Brother Pete takes his piece, right? We, we get that. We don't control that. It's kind of an un unwelcome reality like death, so that just happens. But beyond that, right? You've got to pay the mortgage, rent, utilities. You've got to buy food. You've got to buy gas, clothes. You need that stuff. You've got to have some to repair the stuff that breaks. Stuff always breaks. My car broke. My dishwasher broke. Stuff breaks. We've got to do those things. Each of us, of course, has stuff. We have money, things acquired with money, things inherited, resources. What do you do with it, and what is it for? What is it for? In our Bible text here, Abraham, we know, had a lot of stuff. We can see that just tracking through. He had servants, he had flocks, he had a lot of stuff. But he had God's promise in mind when he went before the sons of Heth, the Hittites, requesting to buy the field. Now, this whole exchange, as I mentioned it, I, I found it a little challenging. To Abraham's request to buy, he wants to buy the field. Ephron says, no, Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give it to you. I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of the people, I give it to you. Sure, free. Bury the dead. Now, I don't really know if Ephron truly intends to give Abraham the field. It might simply be a kind of how the sale was negotiated kind of a cultural dance as to how do you do this thing. I mean, these things happen, right? And in fact, I just saw the other day, maybe a couple of weeks ago, a missionary was writing a, a, a blog post about how the culture is different and, and how he had to learn. So he ordered some food for delivery at his apartment, but the delivery person, when they arrived, refused payment. The missionary tried again to, to pay, but the man refused. So he thought, oh, cool, that's free, that's great. But he found out later but the man was deeply offended by the missionary for not paying for his food. And, and further, he couldn't even afford to give the man the food for free. He was deeply offended. See, it was a cultural thing. That's the dance. Refuse, refuse, refuse. Insist. No, 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 you must take it. All right, if it pleases you, I will take it. That was the cultural dance. He learned that. Now, maybe that's what's in view here. But whatever the ancient custom was for Abraham, he insisted on paying the full price for the field. Look at verse 13. He said to Ephron in the hearing of the people, but if you will hear me, I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead. <laughs> what does Ephron say? Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between you and me? Bury your dead. That's worth 400 shekels, but whatever. Just bury the dead. No worries. Now, some commentators say that that was absolutely exorbitant. I, I, I can't be certain on this. I, I tried to look it up. Uh, but just compare the prophet Jeremiah. Granted, it was during the exile. Prophet Jeremiah bought a piece of land, a field, for 17 shekels. But what remains here is that Abraham, he didn't negotiate. The price, price stated was the price he paid. He wasn't trying to cheap out. He wasn't trying to get a deal. It was worth whatever Ephron said. Because it's God's. And no matter what resource it takes to get, make a claim on what God owns, based on God's promises, that was worth it. He was using temporal resources for God's eternal promise. I think it's a related, in a related way. Uh, there's a story in, um, in two books of the Bible. 
in First Chronicles, it, it, that that version of the story. King David there sinned against the Lord. What he did was he took a census of the people of Israel. Presumably, it was an act of arrogance to say, here's my armies. He took a census. And as a result, this thing displeased the Lord, and the Lord struck down 70,000 Israelites in a plague. Now, the Lord, in response to that, commanded David to build an altar at a very specific place to bring a sacrifice in order to avert the plague, to stop people dying. So ultimately, that act of obedience was for the saving, the protection of God's people. So David, knowing the site, he approached the owner of the site. This is Ornan. He's the owner. And that owner offered it to him for free. No, you, you, can, you can just have it. Take it. David says, King David said to Ornan, no, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me Whatever you say, full price, that's what I'm going to pay. Now, the important principle to note here is that it is good and right to use the resources that we have to invest in, in seeking, in claiming, and proclaiming God's promises. It is good and right to use temporal resources for, for seeking, claiming, and proclaiming God's promises. Jesus said as much. Hear what he says in Matthew chapter 6. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And each of us is stuff. Well, not just material resources, but time and abilities too, right? If you live and die by God's promises, then it's going to show in what you do with those resources. Are you using temporal resources to, uh, for the sake of God's eternal promises? And don't get me wrong here. We don't buy God's promises. They're, they're given to us. But, but are we willing to expend anything of what we have in temporal resources for the sake of claiming, proclaiming, resting in God's promises? Let me ask you, are you laying up treasures in heaven? Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? As we get some application here. I think we need to start by thinking about our relationship with money and stuff and wealth. You are a steward. As a child of God, you are a steward, not an owner. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 6, 20, the Bible says you were bought with a price. And if Jesus' blood bought you, then it stands that he owns everything that you have. So let me encourage you, prioritize. Prioritize the use of your financial resources for the ministry of the gospel. Support the word ministry at your local church. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Honor the Lord. Have you ever thought of what you spend on fast food or Starbucks <laughs> and compared that to what you're setting apart for the Lord's work? Don't be cheap with God. I would suggest you figure out how to give more. Don't give God that which costs you nothing. Don't give God that which isn't 
sacrificial. But just like whatever's left over, I think that's in the category of that which costs you nothing. Understand that God has been generous to you so that you can be generous towards him. That's a principle right out of the Bible. God is generous to you in order that, for the purpose that you be generous towards him. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 9, 10 and 11. He, so thinking agricultural terms, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, seed to the sower to plant the grain, and then the bread that comes from harvesting that and baking it, right? He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that's God, will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And if that's not explicit in us, verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That's a, I call it God's economic principle. <laughs> he prospers you to be generous to the Lord. Again, if you're a steward, if you're not an owner, then God owns it already, right? We're just, we're just acknowledging anytime we give. Oh, that's already yours. You're just, we're just setting it aside. We're not taking away for our stuff. We're, we're just giving you what you own. But listen, your, your ministry investment should never feel coerced. So, so if, you, if, if the whole idea of giving makes you grumble, keep it in your pocket, okay? If it's like, oh, fine, whatever. No, no, don't, don't. But rather, when you give, give out of the abundance of gratitude for joy with God, for the joy of what God has done for you in Christ. God doesn't need your stuff. He wants you to know the joy of trusting him. He wants you to know the joy of building your life around his promises. 2 Corinthians 9. You probably didn't think that this would be a message on tithing. <laughs> but it's stewardship, right? Investment in God's purposes. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. So ask yourself, does the way you use money, the way you use wealth, resources, does it reveal that you are living and dying by God's promises? And only you can measure that. Nobody else can look at your life and say, this is that. It's between you and the Lord. I'm not going to assess it. None of the elders are going to assess that. This is between you and the Lord. Well, knowing that God has been merciful to you, knowing that Jesus is the Son of God sent into the world to bear your sin at the cross, to bring you to the Father, knowing, knowing these are the promises of God, knowing that Jesus will return someday so that all creation will bow before him. Knowing that, knowing and resting on these promises, that should change you. And that will, if you live and die by God's promises, that will build in you a reputation with those around you. That will leave a legacy to those that know and love you and it will inform what you do the temporal resources God has loaned you. Final exhortation, Paul says, as we wrap this up this morning, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for Abraham's faith and his confidence in your promises. And while he was a weak man, like we are all weak, 
Father, you were strong. And your strength in him gave him confidence. Your strength in him built a reputation. Your strength in him caused him to leave a legacy to his offspring. Your strength in him caused him to be willing and abundant with using temporal resources to invest in what you'd already promised. God, we thank you for that. Teach us, teach us, as we look to the promise of Jesus, as your people, to build, to allow you by your spirit to build the character of Christ in us, such that it affects our lives so that we leave a legacy of faith to our children and those we love, and that in the present time before us, we're willing to expend anything and everything for the sake of your promises. And in all of these things, we want Christ Jesus himself to be glorified. We pray in his name.